You're listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, Brian, Lionel's left us, just you and me, stage 15 of the Giro d'Italia, and we're at the northwesternmost point that the Giro will reach this year, Cogne in the Val d'Aosta. Only 10 days ago, we were landing in Sicily, which was, well, the southernmost point of the Giro this year. What a voyage it's been for me over the last 10 days, as it always is. An incredible voyage of discovery, as we always say, very privileged to make this journey every year. We find out a lot about Italy, but, you know, it's an aspect of the Giro d'Italia that I often wonder about and we often ponder on the podcast. To what extent is this race still faithful to one of its founding principles, one of its founding sort of vocations, meanings of teaching the Italians about Italy and being as much about the country, the canvas, as it is about the race? I think it is. You know, obviously every year there are some fixtures in where the Giro goes, but I think every year it tells a story of this all the facets and all the this is like a mosaic piece of art Italy is so diverse it's so stretched out there's such a huge difference in language culture food outlook from you know when you first came to Sicily not that long ago to where we are now well they speak French yeah, I mean, you, it's bilingual up here, two languages, and um, well, well, even if they spoke Italy, Italian to each other, someone from here and someone from Catania, they they might not always understand every single word being spoken. It's that diverse linguistically as well, and that says a lot about. It's just pieced together by you know, it's a fairly young country as as most people know, but it's it's really pieced together by all these very very contrasting regions. Brian, we often wondered as well about how much of this the riders are able to take in. We hear from our audio diarists sometimes that it is a case for them of literally collapsing on the bed at the end of the night and just trying to recover. And there's almost, well, there's often a sense of regret that they can't take in anymore. This was illustrated the other day when Alberto Dainese, who's from the Padova region or the province of Padova, Abano Terme, he went in Reggio Emilia, which is a good, I guess it's two, three hundred kilometers south of Padova, southwest, and well, in the interview, post-race interview after his stage win, he was asked what it was like to win on home roads, and he sort of hesitated for a minute. The interviewer had actually made a mistake. They weren't his home roads by any stretch of the imagination, but Dainese, well, obviously had his doubts for a moment, and he thought that maybe it was his geography that was wonky, and he said, well, I'm not sure whether I'm on home roads. Anyway, then he did the interview in Italian, because there are always two interviews, one in English, one in Italian, if, if the writer can speak both languages. And in the next interview in Italian, he volunteered the fact that he was on home roads. He said, oh, it's fantastic to win on home roads, which sort of underlined the fact that he wasn't entirely sure where he'd been that day either. I remember speaking to Caleb Ewan last year about his wins at the Giro d'Italia and whether he could put a pin in where they had been. And he said, look, my geography is awful. I've got no idea. And... I think, you know, that's one end of the, the spectrum and there are others, you know, we speak to guys like Jacopo Guarnieri and 
Alessandro De Marchi, slightly older riders, more experienced riders, and they're acutely aware of where they are and what the Giro is teaching them about their own country. Well, maybe that's actually because they've ridden several Giros. That is also true. That is also true. There is a, there's a concept in Italian culture called, and it's often to refer, referred to, it's called Campanalismo. And campanalismo means that the outlook of your world is as far as you can see from the bell tower of your town square. And often it's actually, it's actually quite true that you can even see it in elections how keen they are to vote for local election, but how desperately irrelevant national politics seem to, to most Italians. And you, all the way down to you know, simple things as, you know, I, I lived in Pisa for many years. Our, our colleague from Cycling News, Stephen Ferrandes, lives in Livorno and there's a historical hate between those two towns from old times because they used to fight each other in, 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 in wars and, and even today Stephen Ferrand and I we joke about you know me being Pisano and him being Livornese Brian it's an aspect of the Giro as well that's always captivated and attracted to the race great writers great thinkers poets filmmakers we often mention Dino Buzzati on the podcast but there have been many others Pierpaolo Pasolini is another one who is less well known perhaps less familiar to our listeners but we're going to talk a lot about him and a great voyage around Italy that he undertook in the 1950s but this episode is going to be about precisely this asking to what extent the Giro d'Italia is still a great voyage of discovery and to what extent nowadays it is just a great bike race My name's Christopher Jill Jensen and I ride for Team uh, Bike Exchange Jayco. Of course, uh, I used to uh, spend a lot of time in Tuscany. That, that area is always uh, a nice place to, uh, to ride your bike, but I think uh, I'd have to go through all the, the race books I've done uh, from the Giro the past seven editions and I think um, choose choose my favorite go-to spots. Um, I sort of choose. I like to keep the race books in, a, in the hope that I maybe one day when we have to go on a family holiday, I can I can whip out a book and uh, and pick out one of the spots that I, I remember from doing the races, such as this year where we did a, when the stage finishes Potenza, which is, was an area that perhaps you don't often uh, uh, go to on a, on a holiday uh, down the south of Italy, but that was really uh, quite a stunning area to to ride your bike. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next couple of couple of stages, especially the stage of the Dolomites. I think that'll be quite nice. Um, but in general, there's always there's always uh, some some beautiful beautiful areas we visit, especially in the Giro. Not just uh, the race, but also the hotels we stay in, the small towns. It's very, it's quite unique. It's uh, often family-run businesses, as opposed to when you race in France. It's sort of a more of a, a chain of hotels you stay at, where. Here in Italy, you really get to feel the culture of, of, of the places you visit. Especially if, if you have Italians in the team, you hear a lot of a lot of uh, people or Italians talk of this the difference between the north and the south. And this year, especially, we started in the south, um, both in Sicily but also on the mainland. And now we've uh, sort of uh, moved our way up north. And there tends to be maybe a, and sort of a, the the opinion that um, yeah. The North are very proud of where they're from and the South are also uh, equally as proud as, as for, for their southern region. But 
they tend to, uh, they don't, uh, sometimes it, you may get the impression that it's two different countries, but for me as an outsider, it's, it's quite interesting to sort of uh, try and uh, take all those things into account. With my Irish background and uh, living in Denmark, it's, uh, I can, I could sort of, I can try, uh, but it's, uh, it's not quite easy. But it's, it's interesting because it just shows the scale of the country. It's so big. Coming from a small country like Denmark, it's, it's hard to actually feel that difference between yeah, north and south and so on and so forth. But in Italy, it's, uh, it's part, of, part of the joy of riding the jury. There's, there's a lot of different impressions you get throughout three weeks. Pavel Sivakov, Ineos Grenadiers. I've never been uh, that much south in Italy, um, and you know, riding also through the Abruzzo, all these areas, it's been it's been really nice, and I think. Uh, I think, yeah, a bike trip would be really cool, you know, like visiting a bit more Tuscany. I also didn't have the, the opportunity to do it, like outside the bike, you know, I've raced Strade Bianchi and well, I love the, the area. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Italy must be one of the, um, yeah, the best countries in Europe to do a bike trip. Like uh, if you compare, let's say, with Spain, south of Spain is not as as gorgeous as south of Italy. I think there is a lot of hidden gems to, to, to see. And uh, yeah, I think I think it would be amazing. I think it's it's cool to discover some new new places every year. Uh, last year, obviously, I didn't I didn't finish the race, but yeah, every year it's, it's been kind of different. Uh, now I've been in Sicily for the first time this year. Maybe Sardinia. I've never been in Sardinia. Maybe go to Sardinia. That would, that would be cool. Uh, but yeah, apart from this, I think uh, this year it's actually. It's actually really starting from the south out and we're directing to the north. Uh, the north of Italy is always really used. I think that southern part could be maybe more exploited or how, how you say it, so yeah. Well, Brian, we made it to Cogna. We're out of the car and we're in the Val d'Aosta, northwestern most extremity of Italy. You're not, you don't feel particularly at home, I know that. This is not your favourite part of the country. I'm not a mountain man. You're not a mountain man. You'd be much more at home if we were back down in Siracusa or Ortigia. Tomorrow, Brian, we're going to be in Salò um, because that's sort of headquarters for the rest day, the second rest day of the Giro, the southern shore of Lake Garda and a place with a really interesting history. Also, the place that gave us the inspiration for this episode. Now, Salon, the idea of a great adventure around Italy, a great road trip, and a gentleman, a writer, poet, filmmaker by the name of Pier Paolo Pasolini. It's a tangled web. And we're going to start to unpick it now with the help of one of our friends, John Foote of the University of Bristol, historian, cultural commentator, author of a forthcoming book on fascism called Blood and Power. He's going to help us piece together how these things are linked. So it's, a, it's a very interesting choice of place to to have a stage in. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't seen any justification of it, but it's slightly weird 
because what happened was, if you go back to 1943, you know, Italy had been fighting the war alongside Nazi Germany for three years. And then the Italian side of that war collapsed, basically, internally. The war was so unpopular, uh, Italy was invaded from the south by, by, by the Allied forces. And Mussolini was kicked out, who'd been in power for 20 years. He was then arrested by the Italian state. The, the Nazis then sent these planes to save rescue him in a dramatic in um, Abruzzo in very near in near where there's a finish um, well the, the place was called Campo Imperatore and we finished there a couple of times on the Giro last not this year um, yeah that's right and he was he was sprung by the by the Nazis taken to Germany and then brought back and when he's brought back Italy's divided in two there's a civil war going on there's a war between the Germans and the Allies going on it's a kind of battlefield He's brought back and, and the, the Nazis set up what's, called, what's a puppet state, so a kind of semi-autonomous state in the north around Lake Garda. And they call it, the, the fascists who remain loyal to Mussolini call it the Italian Social Republic because the king has betrayed them by arresting Mussolini. They call it a republic. But to kind of take the mickey out of it, the, the, everyone else calls it the Republic of Salò, which is a tiny town, insignificant town on the lake. So it's a kind of... It's an anti-nickname, if you like. And the Republic of Salo is a, you know, has a certain amount of power. It has its, all the ministries are in these big villas on the lake. It's a very strange moment. It's the kind of last dying days of Italian fascism. Very violent, very racist, very anti-Semitic policies, horrible violence against the partisans and against the Jews and against other people. Um, you know, it's the kind of horrible, nasty, re revolting end of fascism. Mussolini's hold up there in his villa, like trying to run this thing where he's not really in control. Hitler's in control. So that's the Republic of Solo, and it lasts until 1945, April 1945, when it all collapses and the Allies reach that area. Mussolini famously tries to escape, dressed as a German soldier, is arrested and um, shot and hung by his feet in Milan. Um, I don't think the Giro should be, the Giro should be going through Piazza di Loreto as well, if it's going through Solo. So um, that's kind of the Republic of Salo in a nutshell. Pier Paolo Pasolini was um, born in Bologna in 1922. There's a lot of stuff going on because the anniversary of his birth, 100th anniversary, 1922, the year of um, fascism was born. He's, he was many things. He's an amazing kind of figure. You can't really categorize him. Poet, incredible filmmaker, um, novelist, um, political commentator, journalist, football player, All kinds of things. Um, Sometimes cycling pundit, we found out as well. well yeah, it also talked you know, on TV about sport a lot, um, but I, I could talk about anything. Incredibly intelligent, interesting. I'm here because I've been asked, I have to say, I confess sincerely. Since it's difficult to answer no, I've said yes. In this case, saying yes has been very difficult. In other cases, naturally, I say no when the thing is grave. Ma venire qui mi piaceva perché il ciclismo è uno sport che amo moltissimo e l'amo e lo amo da vent'anni, già quando ero ragazzino. And his films are absolutely amazing if people haven't seen them. I mean, they're just extraordinary, beautiful and incredible films about, for example, about the poor of Rome. His last film was a film called Salò, or The 120 Days of Sodom, and it's not an easy watch. <laughs> not sure if I want to recommend it. It was actually banned in the UK for 20 years. It's pretty hardcore and it's a kind of incredibly stylized film set in a villa, which is sort of about fascism, but also about lots of other things. Very hard to categorize film, a very extreme film. And I 
probably not for anybody under about the age of 30 to watch. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I found it a very difficult watch, but it's kind of celebrated. And it was, he made it in 76. Um, and there's a great story about because they were making that. And, and Bernardo Bertolucci, his film, his friend and fellow director, was making a film called Novecento quite nearby. And they decided to have a football game between Novecento cast and uh, Salo cast. And Passanini loved football. He was a mad Bologna fan. Really good player, actually. Winger, I think. And they had this game. And the, the kind of icing on the cake of the story is they roped in this 15-year-old guy to play. And he was a guy called Carlo Ancelotti, um, who was actually playing in that game. There's a great picture of a, a very young Carlo Ancelotti playing. And apparently Passanini took it incredibly seriously and got really annoyed when they lost because Ancelotti was the ringer for Novicento, which is a great story. So this film came out, but it was almost immediately banned. Um, it was very extreme and censored, and actually the copies were seized. And within very short time, Pasolini had been murdered on the edge of Rome in an incredibly controversial incident where we, the official story, he was murdered by a guy he picked up at the station, run over with a car, battered to death. But many people believe this could have been a political assassination with more than one person involved. So it's a very controversial. She was quite, still quite young. such a controversial divisive figure he would he, he was kind of beaten up outside his films he'd be attacked by people he has, many of his he ended up in court on a lot of occasions being charged with obscenity and he was kicked out of the communist party for his morals quote unquote i mean i'm, I'm painting Pasolini as quite a doer figure but he's actually could be really funny and if anyone wants to see something like I like Pasolini. It's this great film, little film. It's only about 40 minutes long called La Ricotta, which was an episode. It's got Orson Welles in it. And it's, it's hilarious. It's about, it's about a filmmaking making a bad religious film on the edge of Rome. And it's very funny and beautiful and, uh, and sort of crazy at the same time. So Pasolini was sort of very eccentric as well in what he was doing, kind of very much a kind of such an avant-garde, but fascinating, but also political figure. Still gassing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. Hey everyone, Sam Brand here from Team Nova Nordisk, checking in stage three of Tour of Hellas. Uh, really, really great uh, stage yesterday with Andrea coming second. Uh, big plans to help him do the same again today and hopefully that one step better. We're in Delphi, a uh, fantastic gymnasium, the ancient ruins. It's incredible. The scenery is stunning. Uh, usually stunning scenery is followed by stunning climbs, I guess. So uh, that's where we start today, but we'll give it everything and do our best and stay on top of the diabetes management and I know it's super important as it is every day uh, but for us it's something we need to focus on and uh, we'll do our best and give everything Hey everyone, um, Sam Brand here again checking in post stage 3 today's a bit bittersweet, you know we uh, had a good result yesterday um, today I felt really good I probably had the best legs I've had maybe ever and um, 
I managed to support David and Peter and Andrea over the top, pull them back together. Uh, but the group up front had split, so uh, a small group got away. Then me and Peter began to work to try and bring it back. Unfortunately, we were unable to bring it back, um, but we did our best. We had good teamwork, good legs, so these days happen, N- nothing wrong, just... Uh, we did it all we could. So I'll check in later, but uh, time for massage, food and recovery. Well, Brian, we've heard about Salon. We've heard a little bit about Pierpaolo Pasolini. We haven't heard anything yet about the essay that one, I suppose, could liken to the Giro d'Italia, a Giro d'Italia of sorts. Pierpaolo Pasolini's equivalent of La Corsa Rosa was called... Well, what was it called, Brian? It was called La Lunga Strada di Sabbia, The Long Road of Sand. And what did that mean? Well, this was uh, in 1959, and he was uh, traveling the entire coastal road of Italy in a Fiat 1100, starting in, at the French-Italian border in Vintimiglia and finishing up on the other side, just close to the border of Slovenia. And it was um, travel essays, and it was a way for him to visit the country, of, obviously, of his origin and the country that, where he, you know, obviously grew up and, and he was so familiar with so many things in Italian culture but there was a lot of places that he'd never seen so this was his way of making travel literature and a way to connect the various pieces of the puzzle Naples, July 1959 I arrive in Naples towards evening. The storm wanders afar over the pagan hills. I eat at Chiros after having been stopped in person by La Basaliera herself, who grabbed me by the shirt, then by the waiters of La Citeresa, past the little bridge there behind the silhouette of the castle. Maratea, July 1959. Maratea, a magical name that inspires suspicion and anxiety like all fashionable things to anyone who doesn't want to arrive in second place, to anyone who doesn't want to arrive at all. We talk about Maratea in an ironic vein, solemnly, as the last great Villa San Giovanni to Siracusa, July 1959. I always thought that the city I liked most to live in is Rome, followed by Ferrara and Livorno, but I hadn't yet visited and come to know Reggio, Catania or Siracusa there is no doubt whatsoever that I would like to live here, to live and die here, like Lawrence in Ravello, but to die of joy. Despite the splendid views and lines of streets featuring a baroque that looks like made of flesh, despite the cathedrals of July 1959, I think that probably very few in Italy have ever traveled by car in a single day the entire coast from Reggio to Taranto. Now that I'm here in Taranto, which gleams over two seas like a giant fragmented diamond, I feel as if I dreamed the whole thing. The Onion is not a Mare Nostrum. It's frightening. Upon leaving Reggio, an extremely dramatic original city. From Taranto to Santa Maria di Lecea, July 1959. I fly down the least known coast in Italy, driven by such joy to see that I'm almost blinded by it. Here, everything is on the verge of non-existent. The flat coasts, the arable Norman towns, Arab in the humble part, Norman in the choice part, churches and walls, the sea. Everything is though imbued, distracted by the light. I seize life again at Gallipoli, mysterious centre of town, existing in a region that doesn't exist. It's moreover a city unto itself, a bit like Kutro. 
And it was quite timely as well, wasn't it? Because as we've talked about before in the podcast, the post-war years in Italy were really consumed with a reconstruction, uh, a country getting back on its feet. I mean, we talked a lot in the past about the Giro della Rinascita, 1946, which really symbolised well, the destruction that the war, the Second World War had wreaked and how Italy was trying to rebuild, but it didn't happen overnight. And mass tourism certainly didn't begin until a little bit later in fact probably after Pierpaolo Pasolini undertook his Lunga Strada the Lunga Strada di Sabbia but seen in that light it's also a significant piece of work isn't it yeah it is and it's, it reminds me of part of why I love the Giro because it's a way you know it's now also you call me a plastic Italian but it is my home country and I've, the Giro has given me also the possibility to really see places that I would definitely never have thought I would, would ever go and see and I think for for me, Pasolini is also a very inspirational figure because he was such, you know, as, as John also explains, he 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 would never limited his curiosity to any specific art form. He would, you know, he was a poet, he was a writer, he was a filmmaker, and, and one of my favorite quotes of him is uh, he says, you know, making movies is like writing on paper that burns, and there's always this sense of. Of, of really also dangerous curiosity and everything that, that Pasolini did. He always invested himself immensely in the work that he did. Nothing was left-handed, nothing was done on routine. And, and that, I think, in itself, is, is, is that's, that's quite the task. And, you know, he would have been 100 uh, this year, and he didn't live to become come that old. And, and as John also explains, there's a lot of mis- relatively unresolved issues and, and mysterious elements of his, of his untimely death. As John explains, such was the controversy surrounding Pierpaolo Pasolini, his sexuality, some of his views on various issues, not on cycling, although we did hear earlier um, an appearance on Processo alla Tappa, the famous post-stage show in the Giro in the 60s, and he was being sort of tackled there by Vittorio Adorni, one of the stars of the of the time ma naturalmente questa distinzione non la farei mai il, il, cioè non, non ho mai un, un'idea schizofrenica del mondo nessuno è mai diviso tra pedalatore e uomo è chiaro che tra i ciclisti ci sono degli uomini con i loro casi interessanti proprio quello che è venuto fuori da quello che ha detto Taccone è una vicenda umana molto interessante molto commovente non ha niente a che fare con un pedalatore così e quindi Anche nel, anche nel ciclismo evidentemente c'è del materiale ricco, ricco anche di possibili ispirazioni, perché no? Anche per uno scrittore. He was someone whose contradictions made him all the more compelling. Yeah, I, I agree. Also that I think there's an element of him being, you know, just relentlessly curious. He wasn't, you know, connected obviously with, with, with Marxism, but there's also there's so many elements of his what types of politics he was interested in. He was very, very interested in everyday Italian life and everyday Italians. He was, for someone that it would be very easy to frame him as a as a super intellectualist and someone that you really had to study to, to understand, but but that's not at all the case. And when you read The, the Long Road of Sand, it, you could read it as, as an, a wonderful travel essay through Italy without knowing anything about the career, or the, let alone, you know, especially his films. So I think that good writing should be like that, that you can actually enjoy it regardless of any you know you don't need any kind of reference you don't need necessarily to know everything about the author the the text really speaks for itself (laughs) 
Alessandro De Marchi, Israel Premier Tech. È una cosa che mi manca, è una cosa che mi manca e che... The big trip around Italy is something I'd love to do but haven't yet. It's actually something I'm trying to plan with my family now. I've just bought a van to carry the bikes, partly inspired by my cousin, Mattia De Marchi, who's become one of the strongest ultra and gravel riders on the scene. He does this kind of thing competitively and he's slowly talking me into trying something similar. You never know, that could also be my future. It would be a way of still riding but doing it in a bit more of a laid-back context, at least compared with life as a world tour rider, albeit still with a competitive element because we're still racers at heart and that kind of adventure racing might be a happy medium. The romantic image of the dreamer, the adventurer, is really appealing to anyone who loves riding their bike. And although those ultra and adventure races are extremely taxing mentally and physically, I have the impression that it's a bit easier to take in your surroundings and also meet people and forge bonds. Yes, on the Giro you can admire the scenery, but to get under the skin of a place you also have to meet the people, and we don't have much opportunity to do that. Sometimes we flash through places, and I find myself wishing I had the time to find out about a village or a mountain, but we just don't. Adventure racing or a bike packing trip would perhaps give me that chance. One thing that the Giro has taught me is how to recognize the many shades and differences there are in this country. When in the space of 10 days you've gone from Sicily in the deep south to Trentino in the far north, you've still got the image of the Sicilian fan in your head, and you realize the contrast with the fan in Trentino. Yet you're still in the same Italy. It can be disorienting. And in between these two extremes, these outposts, there's Tuscany, there's Lazio, there's Friuli. So the Giro has given me these photos of Italy, but also moving pictures of an Italy that's changed since I first rode the Giro in 2011. It's a different country from when I started. So yes, for an Italian, riding the Giro kind of keeps your finger on the pulse of your homeland. I knew Italy quite well before because I traveled there a lot for tourism also. But uh, I was quite uh, surprised in Napoli by the the, the, the crowd and uh, the, the whole atmosphere there. The uh, public was really enthusiastic and uh, that was really... Uh, yeah, this is the image I had of uh, Napoli and uh, it confirmed it. Uh, and oh, we had our really nice landscape, but this, I knew that Italy was a really nice country. If I didn't have to work, I'd love to go on a Giro d'Italia, a trip of a lifetime around Italy. I'm scared I won't have the time to ever do it. Obviously, I'd also love to have a blank canvas and build a Giro around the most beautiful places in the country. The first pins in the map would be our UNESCO World Heritage Sites. It wouldn't be a Giro, it'd be a fairy tale. But unfortunately, it will remain a dream, a fantasy, because we have to strike a compromise between cultural imperatives and economic ones. I would also have loved to have done something like Pasolini's Lunga Strada di Sabbia, but I'd have to be 30 years younger, I think. As it is, I probably shouldn't even say where I go on holiday in Italy, because they'll start calling straight away, wanting me to bring the Giro the following year. But no, joking aside, my wife's from Puglia, and we have a house down there on the Ionian coast. Otherwise, we go to see friends in Tuscany. I've got a good mate who makes Brunello di Montalcino wine, for example. Or I go up to Friuli, where I worked as a volunteer after the big earthquake in 1976 and still have very good friends. 
Going back to Jira Roots, there are lots of ideas, but unfortunately they tend not to pass the real-world test. 50 or 60 years ago, in Torriani's day, it was all a lot easier. Teams didn't have the same demands as they do now, the riders didn't, and there was no social media, which has been a major innovation, but has also thrown us off kilter in a certain sense. We can't turn back the clock. Well, Brian, we dream of our our fantasy, our ideal, our utopic Giro d'Italia. The man we've just heard from, Mauro Vegni, has the freedom to design the Giro d'Italia route every year. And we heard him there say that his fairy tale Giro would be a Giro tour of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Italy. Now, you've been studying the map, haven't you? And you've got a rough idea of what that might look like. Well, as of last year... There is a total of 58 sites for the, um, for the UNESCO World Heritage. And if you look at how those spread across the, you know, Italy, you could make a fantastic Giro. I mean, you obviously can't you know, have a stage finish inside of Pompeii, but you can have you know, various places that would be very sort of significant for what makes the cultural heritage of Italy also significant for the rest of the world. So it would be a stunning Giro, and they could really go anywhere because it's spread so widely across the, the the boot of Italy. Give us some highlights, Brian. Yeah, I mean, we're going to start with the Leaning Tower in Pisa, you know, this, <laughs> this place I have a close... Nygaard stays, the Grande Partenza dedicated to Brian Nygaard. Yeah, you know, Lang- the Lange wine-producing region, you know, Barolo, etc., et where we were the other night, is there as well. Fantastic places, you know, Etna is also your UNESCO heritage site. The whole mountain range of the Dolomites is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. A lot of places in Modena, in Genova, Urbino, Assisi, uh, obviously Rome. So there's a lot to pick from, really. I mean, you couldn't obviously logistically have a stage finish, you know, underneath a monument, but you could have it close enough to actually say that the map was inspired by by these heritage sites. I think it's a fantastic idea. Down there in Albero Bello, right in the heel of Italy in uh, Puglia. Our music, of course, on this Giro d'Italia comes courtesy of a Puglian band, Amaraterra. Um, but they also make music which uses lots of different dialects, which again represents another aspect, another dimension of the diversity of Italy, the, the linguistic diversity. But, Brian, have you ever undertaken any kind of epic voyage around Italy, ever dreamed of doing it? We're in Cogne today. brings back memories of 2003 when I just finished my degree and a friend, an Italian friend and I, decided to set out from San Remo and trek to Trieste across. It sounds like an absolute nightmare voyage for you. We trekked across the whole horseshoe of the Italian Alps and Dolomites and we actually stayed in Konya one day on the campsite believe it or not I find that hard to imagine that's not the Daniel Freeber I've gotten to know in some respects it was a very different Daniel Freeber then alright well I'm sure he was a likeable person anyway so no the the majority of the travel I've done in Italy has obviously been following the Giro I haven't kept track of how many times I've done it whenever I've travelled specifically for say a road trip or discovering new places it's you know keep coming back to this pathetically but it's always been to visit wineries and visit wine regions and they're also spread across Italy with such a vast 
diversity and you know different climate different types of soil so i you know i would recommend it to anyone and the beauty of the giro is also that it gives you that inspiration i think when i heard you talk about Limarque uh, early in the week and how uh, to say that you were smitten is definitely an understatement you know just the, the sheer beauty of the places we see here and also what chris chris jensen said that you know he he keeps his giro race books so that at a later point in his life he could go on a trip based on what he passed either in front of the peloton or suffering with the with the gruppetto we could go on forever about this brian couldn't we i mean just yesterday in the car we were comparing the different light qualities in the marque versus piedmont weren't we um Lionel was kind of tutting in the back seat it's one of the reasons we love the Grand Tours, isn't it? We, we set out at the start of this episode um, that we were going to ask the question, is the Giro d'Italia just a great bike race nowadays or is it still a great voyage, a great adventure? And I think we've come to the conclusion that it is very much the latter. It certainly is. That's why also I'm really thankful for being here. It's, it's really chasing a, a dream that's unfolding right in front of your eyes. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.